Thank you for singing out, all of you. Thank you, David and Lois, for helping us in song and worship today. We're continuing, as we, as we do, we, we, we teach through books of the Bible uh, and finding that the best way to understand the Scripture is in the context, and that's a word you hear me use all the time. And so there's no better way to understand a verse in context, a passage in context, than to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. We are continuing in today in our study of the Gospel of John. We come to John 15. It's a familiar passage. Now, if I say uh, John 15, you may or may not um, jump immediately to remember what that's about. We're in the what's called the Upper Room Discourse. This is the time when our Lord was meeting in the upper room. And I'm always astonished at how creative we are and we name these discourses, the upper room discourse. Where was it given in the upper room? Uh, so this, this, this is a, our Lord's last meeting, the last supper with his disciples. And so with that, we, we come to chapter 15. That's right in the midst of that. And, and I encourage you to follow in your Bible in some way. And in John chapter 15, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. John 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus is continuing to speak, and he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So our Lord, as he continues his instruction, it's a time of uh, teaching. It's a time of encouragement to prepare his disciples for his departure. And always that's in my mind as I'm reading these sections. His final words with his disciples. His public ministry is over. And now this ministry to his disciples, this is the last that there will be there of some words in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he's taken from them to stand the trials and ultimate crucifixion. And so as he's getting ready to leave, he, he prepares, to, and he's preparing his disciples. When I, again, the upper room discourse, so much of it is to prepare them for his departure. Giving the words of instruction, words of encouragement, words of hope. And in doing this, he turns to speaking, uh, uh, we're using an illustration, that of a vine and a vineyard to teach a vital concept. And he teaches them about abiding in Christ. He begins in verse 1 by saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now we've been saying throughout the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements that statements of Jesus makes of himself and this is the last one this is number seven I am the vine I am the true vine now vines were well known in that day uh, in the in the land of Israel now, grape vines were common pretty much everywhere uh, as were olive trees fig trees <laughs> you know some of those things that we think of that that, that, that characterized the land, but, but vineyards and, and grapevines were everywhere. And so he uses something that's very common to their understanding. And, he, and, and, and they, so 
you know, when we talk about things like vineyards, most of us probably haven't ever raised grapes. We've eaten them, and maybe we have quite a bit of authority and opinion about whether red grapes or green grapes are better. But how many of us have actually raised them? We're, we're there. People, it was common, just as when we talk about the shepherd. They saw shepherding all the time. It was around them. It was a part of their culture. In the same way, the raising of grapes and vineyards was common. And so as he uses this illustration, he's, he's grabbing on to things that are familiar to them. And he says he is the true vine. Now, not only were vines common in Israel, but the idea of a vine was, as a symbol was also important. Basically, when he says he is the true vine, he's saying there's another kind of vine that's not the true vine. The, Israel was often depicted as a vine. Uh, for example, uh, we've, you might hear we've talked at times about the Maccabeans. Israel had been under the boot of different occupying nations for, for, for centuries. They were under the occupation of Babylon and then Persia, and then the Greeks. And then now when the New Testament's written, they're under the boot of Rome. But there was a period of independence called the Maccabean period where they stood up and, and for a while, Israel was actually an independent nation. And one of the things they could do is they, could, they minted their own coins, and on that coin, they put a vine to represent Israel. It was a common. On, on the temple, there was a beautiful uh, beautiful vine that was that again was it was a it was a picture of fruitfulness and it represented God's blessing on Israel but you see it in scripture as well in Psalm 80 verses 8 to 10 God speaks of Israel as a vineyard as a vine you have bought brought a vine out of Egypt of course that's that's Israel you have cast out the nations and planted it you prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. And so here God's being addressed and saying, you brought up a vine out of Egypt. That's Israel. But the image of, of a vine, Israel as a vine, wasn't always a positive image. Over in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 7, there's a depiction of that. But I'll read part of that at least. Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also a winepress in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, brought forth wild grapes. Have you ever, you know the difference, haven't you, if you eat grapes at all? Sometimes I do a sampling before I actually invest in grapes at the store. You, do, you grab one of the grapes and, and you think, okay, I've got to know if this is good or not, and I'll risk the pesticide. Let's try it. And sometimes it's so sweet, it's like, this, is, this should be in the candy aisle. And you grab it. And sometimes there's a pucker that says, no, that's why they're selling them so cheap. It's nasty. And so... So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then have I expected it to bring forth good grapes? When I, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This is God speaking. So I gave it every advantage, the, the, uh, the best of soil, the tilling, the care. I've made all provision. And all I get is these sour grapes. I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. And that's through verse 5. He continues on in verses 6 and 7. He's going to give it over to destruction. But the point here is Israel is seen as a vineyard, in this case, that though blessed by God, has not responded in kind to God. And so God says, okay, I've given you every advantage. Now I'm going to give you over to destruction. 
Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 is another passage. God says, I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into a degenerate plant of an alien vine? I, I, it's like I went out and got the, the, went to the best um, gardening center, bought the best vine, planted it with the best soil and the best of treatment, and it looks like it's a, it's a weed. And so God, speaking to the nation of Israel as if it's a, a vine, so with that in mind, Jesus says, I am the true vine. You see, Israel as a nation had not been true to the Lord. I am the true vine. So, so for us, it almost seems like kind of foreign. We, we've got to grab our mind around it. To them, he's using language that instantly connects. And so I hope we can help us think about that. Israel was the unfaithful vine. The ungrateful vine. But the Lord is the true vine. The Lord Jesus Christ says he is the true vine. And he says, and my father is the vine dresser. God the father is seen as the vine dresser. Again, that's not a label I use a lot. You probably haven't used that word this week unless you were reading this passage. Some of your translations have vine dresser. I think the King James has the husbandman. And there might be other languages this actually I, i'm not quite sure why we translate it vine dresser uh it the word here is um in the greek it's georgos georgos you know that word we derived the name george from it and it means um farmer it literally has the it comes from two words earth and work that's a farmer he works the soil doesn't he and so this isn't just someone who, when I think of vine dresser, I think of someone who's, well, not putting ribbons on vines, but, you know, just caring for the vine. This is the farmer who, who's caring for, for it all. He's, he's, he, but he's over the farm. And, and he's responsible for the care of the farm. And so he is over the care of the vine. And so he, Jesus says he is the vine and, the, and the, God the Father is the one who's over. He's, he's in control over the care and guidance of the vineyard. He's the caretaker. God the Father is the caretaker of the vine. In verse 2, he continues, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. This is what viticulturists do. That's a good word, isn't it? Viticulturists. You can look it up if you like. It's someone who takes care of vines. It's a, a grape grower. But if you had to tell someone your job and you were a grape grower, you would. Grape grower doesn't sound nearly as good as a viticulturist. You'd think you'd have to, you'd have to pay a viticulturist more than a grape grower. Well, the point is, uh, this is what viticulturists, this is what vine growers, this is what people have vines do. They, if, they, um, if, they don't, if, they, if they have a branch that doesn't bear fruit, they get rid of it. If it does bear fruit, then they're pruning it, taking care of it to bear more fruit. The vine, now, so let me explain something. The vine, and if you've ever driven by a vineyard uh, or been in a vineyard, the vine is, looks, is kind of like the stump. It's like the trunk of the tree. And so a lot of times, depending on the time of year, sometimes you'll drive by a vineyard and, and of course, we'll look out and see it. You'll see all, a, a sea of green and see all kinds of the colors of the grapes and it looks beautiful. Sometimes, depending on the season, you go by and you just see these stumps out there and think, what in the world has happened? Because pruning is really big in, in, in raising grapes. So, but the vine is that tree trunk stump out of which everything comes. The rest of it is called, if you will, the branches. So it's, the vine is the main part. The branches come out of it, and, and the fruit doesn't grow on the vine. It grows on the branches, you know, like the pecan trees and things like that we have around here, or apple trees, peach trees. Uh, if you, you, know, you think about it, you, if you're going to go pick peaches from a peach tree, you don't go to the trunk, do you? They grow out on the branches. Same concept here. Here's the point. 
if a branch is non-productive in that vine, so the, the branches that are coming off, if it's non-productive, it said it's removed. And that keeps the vine from wasting its energy, its resources, nurturing a vine that's not doing anything. Now, I, 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 I need to, I guess, step back and say, the, the passage before us, there are at least three different schools of thought about how to approach the text. And, and this might be the kind of thing we could talk some more about this evening when we come back and talk about this passage. But one school of thought, you know, if I can use labels, we can think of Calvinist and Arminian, all right? Uh, uh, the Calvinist, uh, we, we think because they re- often reflects the teaching of Calvinism, but an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And one of the key things for our passage, that salvation is secured by God. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. So I'm going to put that in the Calvinist bucket. The Arminian, and you have to spell that correctly, that's not people from Armenia, but those who are influenced by a guy named Arminius. And they... they put less emphasis on the sovereignty of God, more on man's choice, and with that they say you can lose your salvation. Okay, so, Cal- so secure salvation, insecure salvation. Calvinist Arminian, okay, we got some labels for them. The, the Arminian approach is saying this is all about uh, Christians who can lose their salvation. The Calvinist approach, and I'll tip my hand here, the biblical approach. You cannot lose your salvation. And so it's not talking here about Christians who can lose their salvation. Then within the, that camp, the Calvinist camp, if you will, the eternal security camp, there's two schools. One says this is emphasizing the Christian life in terms of closeness to God. And the other approach is to say this is referring to um, genuine, not, not, not just the emphasis on Christian living as much as genuine Christian salvation versus non-genuine Christianity. That's where I'm going to be coming from because I think that best fits the text. So we'll develop it. And like I said, if, you, if that already is, I've done a couple of things. I might have just thrown you all kinds of curveballs. And now I said, wait, where, where did the, what happened to the grapes? Um, or maybe I've kind of muddied the waters. So come back tonight, we can talk about it. But so, but so he talks about this fact that in this vine, Jesus is the vine. That's everybody agrees on that. And he's got the life. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Um, we're told every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. What does it mean to, to take away? Um, every branch that does, he, t- he says that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Basically, that has the idea of taking away, get rid of. He's, he's, he's removing it uh, and, and getting rid of it. So when he says here, the, the fine dresser takes it away. If you're going through and he sees there's no, nothing happening on this branch here, he snips it off. I, I am not a gardener. I am not a viticulturist. I know, you know, we don't have any, uh, enough sun in our yard to raise tomatoes. And we don't have enough water in our country to raise tomatoes in my yard. But anyway. But I remember being taught by someone, some of you may remember, Stan Gillum. He raised all kinds of vegetables. And I remember him talking about the tomato plant and how to nurture it. And he would say, part of a of, of successful tomato plant is you have to pinch off some of these little, little growth here. Because that growth right there is going to grow and it's going to use up the energy of the plant and produce nothing. And so he, he says, you pinch that off so that you just have a few branches that are being productive. I never could figure out which ones to pinch off. And so uh, what I did instead is I would go to Brookshire's and I would squeeze and, and buy nice red tomatoes. <laughs> but anyway, but, 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 but so no, it's even in tomatoes, in a lot of areas, if it's not productive, get rid of it. And that's the picture here. The vine dresser comes in 
And, and he's, he finds if, if there's a, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He removes it. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Now, that literally, the word for prune here is he cleanses it. He cleanses it. Maybe you think about pruning a lot of times. You're kind of, uh, maybe you even talk about, we're going to clean this up a little bit. You get your snippers out and you start getting rid of um, unnecessary things. And so what is he doing? He's doing that, that concept of, of pinching off. If, if it's a non-productive branch, let's get rid of it. If it's productive, but he, but he'll get rid of some of the um, extraneous growth so all the energy can be into producing those grapes. He cleanses it. He doesn't get rid of the branch, but he gets rid of the things that distract it from producing fruit. Now, there's a good picture of the Christian life. The Lord in his mercy sometimes will, 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 will pinch off some areas in our life that are taking up a lot of energy but producing no fruit. That's God's loving care for us. When he might say, you're spinning your wheels over here and you're, you're accomplishing nothing for eternity. This isn't growing your character to be more like Christ. This isn't uh, producing God's fruit in the world. This is just fruitless energy. And, 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 and as a loving uh, farmer, he, he'll pinch that off. And so God, so the problem is, and, and I've never talked to a tomato plant, but, but the theory might be it might sting a little to pinch off a plant, to pinch off a, a little branch, to pinch off some growth. But here the point is God in his mercy, and he uses the word here, to, again, to clean us up. God in his mercy sometimes will take us through some times of pain to clean out the areas that are clogging up the flow of God's grace, that are, that are using up our energies in non-productive ways instead of producing fruit, godly character, and, and good works in this world of darkness. So, so what he's saying is that's God the Father. That's what he does. He, he cleans us up. Well, what does he mean by that? He, he expels it, verse 3, or explains it in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And he says, you, in other words, are productive branches. You're not worthless. You're not those things that we've got to snip off and cast off. You're clean. You're, you're the good branches. And that word clean just jumps off the, the page at me. Again, the word prune here was in my translation, that's the word clean. Same word here. You are clean already. You've been pruned. You're, you're productive. But that reminds me of something the Lord said back in chapter 13. Remember at the, when he washed the feet of the disciples? <laughs> Peter, uh, you know, made it a big scene. Don't clean just my feet. Clean my head. Clean my hands. And Jesus says um, to, G to Peter, but then really draws it out to all of them. You are clean. You could translate that. Y'all are clean. But then he said, but not all of you. That's always been such an important passage to help me understand. Judas Iscariot was not a believer. Sometimes people will wonder, was, was Judas a believer? Did he and, and just go, go wrong? No, he, and, and that's what Jesus is saying. Judas was not clean. He was not a believer. He was not born again. He didn't lose his salvation. He could spend three years in the presence of Jesus watching and hearing and learning and going along and talking the talk. But he didn't know Christ. He wasn't born again. Titus 3.5 says, we're cleansed by the washing of regeneration, being born again. Judas had not experienced that. But the other disciples had, and so his way of describing a born-again believer in, in, in chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. 
So being born again is to be clean. He's saying to them, I'm talking here about abiding. You, you're living branches. You're productive branches. So he's not warning them, but, but, but put it in perspective. What he's saying is, and Judas was not. You are clean branches. Judas was not. You are fruitful branches. Judas was not. And that's why I come to this passage and say, he's not talking about losing salvation. Because it's so clear in the Gospels, right? When he says in John chapter 10, you know, that he, he holds us. He's not letting go of us. Judas never knew the Lord. He was not clean. He was not born again. They are. And so, so the, the fruit producers are the born-again Christians. The non-producers are the not-born-again Christians. And I shouldn't use that expression, really. If you're not born again, you're not Christian. But have you ever heard that expression? I remember reading one of the gov- Texas governors. Someone, some, someone said, are you a Christian? He said, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, but not the born-again type. <laughs> Problem. <laughs> That's the only type there really is. Uh, one's a label, one's a reality, okay? And so here's the point. Jesus comforts them. I'm not, t- I'm not telling you guys that I'm about to snip you off and put you in the fire. You're clean. You're productive. But I'm helping you see the distinction of what happened to Judas. He was not connected to the life of the vine. Never was. He was never born again. See, so one of the things we wrestle with sometimes is we'll see someone in, in church or something like that that all of a sudden, and this might be the local church or the broader church, we'll see someone who's an outspoken you know, Christian and then all of a sudden they go massively shipwreck and apostate and deny, deny the gospel and deny Christ. And we think, what in the world happened? Did they lose their salvation? What does God tell us? No, you can't lose what God gives and God keeps. They never had it. And they couldn't keep up the act. If you try to fake being a Christian, it can be very discouraging and disheartening. And so he's trying to help them understand what happened to Judas. See, remember, as far as they're concerned, Judas is out shopping, remember? Jesus said to him, you go and do what you must do. And they thought, well, he's got the money bag. Maybe he's going to go out and make a donation to the poor. Maybe he's going to go buy supplies for the feast. They're not thinking, ah, we know who the traitor is. But they're going to figure that out in a couple hours. They'll be down in the garden of Gethsemane. And they'll see the soldiers come to address Jesus. And who's going to lead them to do it? Is that Judas out in front? What's he doing there? He's a dead branch. He's a fruitless branch. He's, he's, not, he's not born again. You are. It reminds me over in 1 John, right? In chapter 2, is it 19? Where John is going to write to the churches. And say, so you may get a little worried. You're going to see people abandon Christ, abandon the church, who were a part of the church. And what does he say? I call it a sermon in prepositions, right? They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. That's Judas. He couldn't keep up the charade. And so so Jesus is teaching this principle to the disciples here. Because not only are they going to go through the trauma of Jesus' departure... There's the departure of Judas. And, and we, th- we think he must have been highly regarded because they let him carry the money bucket. And have you ever experienced that when maybe someone big named Christian leader falls? The ripple effect in many is, oh, what about me? And so Jesus is saying, don't worry. You're attached to the vine. Judas never was. 
So, so that's what he's getting at here. The fruitless branch, Judas is a perfect example of that. But they're believing, born-again disciples. They're the living, fruit-bearing branches. Okay? Well, he goes on to talk about that in verses 4 to 8, the abiding and bearing concept. He goes further. In verses 4 and 5, he reads, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. For without me, you can do nothing. I feel like we should add a verse there. We have to be very careful about doing that in scriptures. But what he's getting at is nothing eternal. Nothing spiritually... We can do a lot, can't we? Without Christ, we can do a lot. But nothing eternal. Nothing genuinely spiritual. We can be quite busy without Christ. But in his mind, all that busyness and energy is... To use the, the Greek phrase, a big goose egg. It's a nothing. It's a nothing. So, so he's, apply, he's, he's, he's starting to, he's, he's given the principle here. Here's the vine dresser. Here's the farmer caring for the vine. Gets rid of the dead fruit and, and takes care of the good fruit. You're, you're, you're the good branches, he's telling them. You're living. And here he's, so he's applying it to the disciples. Just, so just as a branch doesn't bear fruit and if it's not attached, so they can't bear fruit in Christ in ministry and, and in their lives without Christ. So again, context. Where, when is he talking? When is this conversation happening? Upper room, that's where. When? In a couple hours, he's snatched from their presence and they'll never be with him again until the resurrection. Never is a long way. It's a couple of days, but that's, that's going to be a whole different story. He's trying to prepare them. And what he's saying is, don't despair. I may be gone, but you're still in the vine. You're still in the vine. I'm not, I'm not forsaking you. He's already promised the helper is going to come. And it's the helper, the Holy Spirit, who, who accomplishes, who, who energizes this connection with Jesus. And so he's saying, I, I'm, you're not being abandoned. You're not on your own when I'm gone. You're in the vine. And, you, and you're not going to try and work up a system to make this work. You're going to live out my energy in your lives and in your ministry. That's what he's telling them. As they're looking ahead, it's going to be, he's talking about the spiritual relationship they have with the Lord. The Holy Spirit's going to make it happen. And from that, they'll have the strength to go forward. They'll have the strength to continue to serve Christ. The only hope they have for that is dependence not on their ability, but on Christ's ability. Not on their wisdom, but Christ's wisdom. Remember, Jesus said, you're going to do greater works than I am. How? Through the energy of Christ surging through them. Surging through them. So in verse 15, in chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Basically, that's kind of a restatement. So as a good teacher, he uses repetition. He's reminding them, I am the vine, you are the branches, you need me. But you're connected to me. That's the point. You're connected to me. Have you ever called customer support or and, and about a computer that's not working or a printer's not working? It used to be you talk to a person. Now it's kind of machine or whatever. You go online, you figure it out. But the first question they often ask is, would you please, there's a wire in the back of your machine. Would you track that and just make sure it's plugged into the wall? I wonder how many times the phone conversation dies right there. Click. <laughs> how embarrassing. <laughs> Did you, is it pl- and, and sometimes you get a little annoyed. Yes, my machine's plugged in. 
I know it needs electricity. Can we move on? And he's saying, the only way you're going to work is if you're plugged into me. And you are. You are clean, he told them. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. What a contrast this is, verse 6 to verse 5. So he made the restatement of his idea in verse 5. Now he throws up a contrast to that. Instead of abiding in Christ, here's a not abiding branch. Instead of continuing on the vine, there's a casting away from the vine. Instead of fruitfulness, there is withering. And the final outcome for the non-abiding branch, withered, non-fruitful as it is, it's cast out to be among the limbs that are gathered and tossed into the fire. I recently had an experience with this. For some time we'd had a tree that uh, every season or so would have to, some of the limbs were obviously dead and would snip them off and snip them off. At some point you get to say, when does this thing go away? And I was holding out for the tree. You know, there's still life. Well, this year that came to an end. With the heat and all that and just the reality, kept watching for the leaves and they stayed dead brown after the winter into what we could have called spring into the summer heat the leaves continued dead brown and so I followed instructions I got the chainsaw and it went away I cut it off I cast it into a pile of other dead branches if you have pecan trees you have dead branches and and left that pile to be gathered and cast into the fire. And that's what he's describing here. That's what the pruners do. This, this branch is dead. They take it away. They lift it off literally. Snap it off. They cast it away. It, it, con- it continues to dry out. And then what are you going to do with it? Now, oh, you can't build anything with vines. You just, you just burn them. That's all you can do. What a contrast to abiding in Christ, those who don't. The fruits of those branches are people who show no evidence of God's work in their lives. That's because he's not working in their lives in, in, in a vital way. God is sovereign over all. But they have no relationship to the living God. They are spiritually dead, incapable of serving him, incapable of loving him, incapable of producing fruit. They're dead. So sadly, the end result for them is ultimately they're cast into fire. As that branch, and it's interesting to me that word that these withered branches are cast into the fire, it's the same language used in Revelation 20 to describe those who, after the great white throne judgment, are cast into the lake of fire. That's the picture here. The non-abiding branch the fruitless branch, the unregenerate, unborn again person is cast into the lake of fire. Now again, they, they may be people connected to Christianity, connected to the church, but not in a vital and living and born again way. And the ultimate destiny is to be cast into fire. Now, Just by way of contrast, in John chapter 6, verse 37, what did Jesus tell his disciples? Starting in verse 35, Jesus said, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. There's another picture of in Christ, our our provision comes. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me will by no means be cast out. So again, he's talking about someone who was never born again. Only the never born againers are cast out. Those who've trusted Christ will not be cast out. So he's not saying to believers, you have to worry about being cast out. What he's saying is to church people, are you truly connected? Are you truly in Christ? Or are you going through the motions because this is how your family was raised? 
Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, there's further instruction. His word is living and active in our life. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. And so, so he's talked about the warning of the, the, the dead ones. He's explaining a Judas, and in there he's, there's a warning to us. Judas could hang with the crowd for three years. Judas could go along with, with, with all the verbiage and go with all the motions for three years. And not be born again. But he could put on enough of an act that the other disciples never even saw that. But the farmer can see. The farmer can tell. And he was pruned off. But now to the disciples he's saying, abiding in Christ will will have a fruitful prayer life. Not only will he energize our service to Christ, not only will he he energize by like the fruit of the Spirit in our life and, and our character and conduct, but our prayer life will reflect we're connected to the vine. And we'll ask, he says, you'll ask what you desire and it should be done for you. And you might say, ask whatever you desire. Well, that's the whole point. We're connected to the vine. We desire what the vine wants. I heard about a believer talking to a, an unbeliever, and the unbeliever was saying, challenging the, the new believer and saying, so are you telling me you can't do this, now you can't do this and you can't do that? And he said, well, I never said that. I could do those things. I could do, all this, I could do those things as much as I want. But here's the key. I don't want to anymore. He changed my desires. Now my desire is to please and honor and serve him. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. Like Jesus so often did. What's my desire? Not my will, but thine. And it'll be done. And notice, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you'll be my disciples. I'm no viticulturist, but I'm going to guess that if a vine produces good grapes... They give credit, oh, you got a good stock there, I'll bet. I mean, they do that with trees, and I know pecans and all that. Well, well that's, that, you've got a good tree there. And what he's saying is, who gets the glory when we produce fruit? A transformed character. When we're serving and, and being used of God, who gets the glory? God does. God does. In verses 9 to 11, he talks then about just abiding in his love. As the Father has loved me, I've also loved you and abide in my, uh, uh, you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and your joy be full. So again, now he's going on and further describing the abiding, the Christian life. He says, the fathers love me and I've loved you. He's telling his disciples and he tells each and every one of us. As the father loved the son, the son loves us if we know Christ as Savior. It's a loving relationship. Now you see some of these farmers and some of these gardeners, oh, they're, they're in love with their plants. They're out there tenderly caring and constantly working on them and giving them all the best attention. Sometimes people look at God as a, as, as a dictator, as a tyrant, as someone that can't stand the thought that there might be some joy in our life. No, no, no. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves us. It's, it's, it's a loving relationship. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. So as we said, as he said earlier, love for Christ is seen in obedience to Christ. Right? We saw in verse... Chapter 14, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. That's how we show our love for Christ. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Again, too often when we hear the word obey, we think it is contrary to love. In Christ's thinking, in God's economy, we're not seeing things through his eyes when we think like that. 
Love obeys. How often has Jesus made it clear, I'm obeying the Father. I, t- I say what he tells me to say. I do what he tells me to do. My joy is to do the Father's will. Have you ever seen a child do something for you and their, their, their face just lights up to know that they did something that pleases you? That's love. Love uh, obeys. Have you ever looked into, tried to look into a child's vo- eyes that doesn't want to do your will? It's a different look, isn't it? Okay, And, and so what he's saying, love obeys. Love delights to, to, ser- to do what the Father wants. Love obeys. When we think of obedience as tyranny... We're not seeing through God's eyes. Heaven is filled with those who delight to obey the Father. There's not an angel in heaven who doesn't jump at the chance to accomplish a mission for the Father. I'm here. Let me go. Me, please, me. Now, there's no envy in heaven either, so I guess there's no problem with that. And the others rejoice. Good for you. You get to do that. But love delights to obey and bring pleasure to the Father. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. I have to wonder, is our Lord's eyes kind of watering up? He knows that joy is not going to be the, the language they're speaking for the next couple of days. And he's trying to encourage them and strengthen them. I, I'm trying, I'm speaking these things that you might know joy. All this talk about obedience and producing fruit, being cut off and cast into fire. And he put, what he's trying to put it in perspective and, and says, what I want you to know is joy. I want you to know my joy. When we abide in Christ, again, it's not the tyranny of compulsion. It is the joy of life. Have you ever looked out on a, maybe a cool spring day and seen a, a calf skipping in the pasture? The joy of life. And that's what he's saying. I want you to know my joy. This is where sometimes I think that this is one of the clues that something's wrong, that maybe we, we don't know the vine at all because if we look at the Christian life just as these uh, uh, overbearing duties and we could never do enough, that's the first clue. We're trying to do it in our strength. Do you, do you, even, do you even know the vineyard? Do you even know the vine? Because if we're, if, if we, if we're attached to the vine, joyful, loving obedience flows in our veins. Okay, there's another part to the story, I know. In this fallen world, we have indwelling sin. I guess that would be hardening of the arteries spiritually that kind of hinders that flow until we're in heaven but the point is the genuine Christian life is a life of loving, joyful obedience that delights in the joy of the Father that delights in the joy of the Father I think of our dog coming and and, 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 I, and I said, you want to go for a walk? She can't sit still. She squirms with delight just for the fun of being out there together. And that's a picture of the disciple. Just the delight of a walk with the Lord. He's speaking to his disciples words of encouragement, but there's also an explanation. What do you, how do you explain Judas? Do we get it now? He, he never was connected to the vine. There has to be, I think Jesus taught this for another reason too. For 2,000 years, we still read the words that he spoke to his disciples. And there's a warning to us. Can you, can you see evidence of fruit in your life? No fruit. No life. 
No life. You need maybe you need to rethink your connection to the Savior. Have you trusted in Christ? Do you do you know him as Savior? Or have you been a, going along with the flow? Okay, warning. Someone might say, oh, wait a minute. Um, I, haven't, I, I can't see any fruit in my life. Well, when did you trust Christ? Fifteen minutes ago. Okay, <laughs> let's give it some time. I'm not an expert, but I did some research um, and on the Internet, which is where all truth abides. The typical vine, that stump, it takes three years before it produces grapes that you'd want to eat. So we, we need to give time for the young believer to bear the fruit. But when I talk to someone that professes to have trusted Christ in their youth, and their long past youth, and there is no evidence of any kind of Christian fruit in their life, I take them back to the gospel and say, I don't see any, any sign of life. May I, may I point you to the shepherd? And so I'm not you know, speaking to you specifically, except I'm speaking to you specifically. <laughs> if that describes you, friend, um, hear the offer, hear the call, hear the summons of Christ, trust in him as Savior. You cannot, you cannot accomplish the Christian life just by your efforts. That's not what it is. It's a vital engrafting into Christ. And if you're convicted of that, that you truly have not trusted him, hear the call and trust in Christ. For those of us who know the Savior, don't resent when the Father pinches off some of those things that, that are just distracting you from what's fruitful. Thank him. Thank him for the wisdom that he has to know where to pinch. Trust him. And may we grow in the vibrant, energetic joy coursing through our veins, the joy of knowing and serving him. Father, we thank you that you came to us in our deadness, in our darkness, and you spoke light into darkness, life into these dead bones, that we might be your vineyard. Father, I pray if any here have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if any hearing these words have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, awaken them to their need and show them Christ. For those of us who know him as Savior, Father, may we have confidence in you. And Father, may we be truly fruitful vines to your glory and delight. We pray it in Jesus' name.